0: How have you found like talking about this stuff on Book Talk so far? I feel like uh, Book Talk's perception of uh, radical literature is not always like the best.
1: It's like a double edged sword. Like, I definitely feel like I take on my Lennon persona when I talk about it online because I've been doing it for so long. It's either I have like Radlibs and like the social chauvinist who like get upset and call me a tanky, or then I have like the anarchist who are also mad and calling me a tanky. And I have like the conservatives who are also like, you're one of those Joe Biden antifas.
0: (laughs) You're getting in trouble from all sides. I I feel like. You can't win. No, no, no. There is no winning. And uh, that's why I'm starting the podcast off strong. We're going to just start attacking or being attacked from episode one. I feel like. (laughs) This is the first episode. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is the introduction to the podcast, actually. This is, hi everyone. Let's read nonfiction together. Today we're starting with one of the most radical texts uh, that you can read. So this is uh, Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. Like we said, it's the first episode. Uh, I'm Nathan Shurek. I am Schizophrenic Reads Online. I read uh, nonfiction books. And today I'm joined by At Hungry Rye. You want to give us a little introduction?
1: Hi, I i am at hunky rye my name is mariah i'm realizing most people don't know what my my legal name is they don't know what to call me um i've been making content on tiktok for i think over three years now and i don't know what i'm known as or what i do i kind of just make content it used to be a lot of like satanist anti-religious dogma and then also like leftist content feminist content all that We're jazz not-
0: when I first found you on your old account, you were going by commie Mommy. That's what I remember. Like your, your, <laughs> <laughs> this is a while back because you've been on your new account for a while now. But I remember that was like one of your tags in your profile.
1: Yep, that it was good. True. It was good.
0: No, I think you you hit off like big on TikTok a while back with uh, Satanist and Leninist critiques of things uh it was great and now you're now you're kind of in the book talk game it seems like
1: i think that's been like the natural progression for a lot of people who were like very i don't know like profound leftist like the more like revolutionary side because so many people were just ip banned or they completely nuked everyone's account like political tiktok as it exists today is not what it used to be it used to be a lot more I don't know fun and you could talk about a lot more stuff but you really can't get away with any of that now so it's kind of us trying to find a way to spread the good word without getting in trouble and nonfiction TikTok or book talk is just a really great means of doing it because it is nonfiction. a lot of it is like historical critiques and talking about different philosophers of like the 18th and they what am I thinking 18 and 1900s I didn't know anyone would be interested in that. That's a very niche genre, but it does reach a big audience. So it's no, nice. No, it's,
0: it's been good. Yeah, I I've, I've always kind of stuck to book talk cuz I feel like it's the one way to protect my account. Like I feel like if I just do too many like open rants to, like without s- citing a book, like I just risk, you know, mass reporting and stuff like that. And I mean it happens occasionally even with holding up books, but yeah, TikTok does not take kindly to some of the language that we use or some of the rhetoric that we're talking about. And um, I think books is kind of, (laughs) I think the entry point for a lot of us now, because I've seen it more and more with uh, accounts that both of us follow that have now transitioned into talking more about movies and books and, you know, other types of like art form as a way to like start conversations back to what we really kind of want to talk about a lot of the time.
1: Yeah. And I see a lot of people who used to be part of it get kind of upset. I think that, I think some of us are like sellouts and we're not doing enough, but we have to find a way to maintain an online presence because despite what anyone thinks and we don't want to get like too big into like the whole theory bro, like phenomena, the like fascists and whatnot are in the all right are propagating very easily on the app. So if we have to, you know, talk about nonfiction books and be able to apply Marxist theory to it, what is the harm in that? Or watch a movie like Bugs Life and talk about how it's about workers' liberation. Like is where is the harm in that? I think it's a net positive.
0: Well, I also think it's like drawing in a new crowd. You know, it's like I, I think like one of the things that doing this as the first episode, doing state and revolution as the first episode, is kind of just showing people like, yeah, there's so much nonfiction out there that is non political. I guess I mean it's all political, but like isn't directly political theory that you can read and enjoy. But you can also read and enjoy this stuff. Like there is absolutely a time and place for things like this. And I think people tend to get like a little bit worried getting into theory or getting into kind of like history broadly because they think it's intimidating or they're not sure they're going to understand it. But one of the things that I want this podcast to kind of be focused on is to like break that down. So like I said, we're going to be talking about State and Revolution by Vladimir Lenin. Rai, do you want to give uh, an author info for uh, Lenin?
1: Um, yeah. So most people know that Lenin was. Depending on where you learned in school, you might have learned that he was a dictator of the USSR. I know him as being one of the many leaders of the Bolshevik Party, which led a very successful revolution in October of 1917 to overthrow the very oppressive czarist regime and like monarchy. He has a really interesting history. He came from a revolutionary family. He was a lawyer. His brother was executed because he was a terrorist, like blew up one of the royal family's carriages. And then he was executed. And so he has a really interesting backstory of like how he came to be him being a young lawyer and finding Das Kapital, which is like in The Life and Death of Lenin. They talk a little bit about that and how it just like consumed him. And his sister Anna talks about how he would be sitting super animated at the kitchen table like talking about Marxism and whatnot and how that kind of led to his development of class consciousness, which was pretty common, like to have these like petty bourgeois like people who were educated because working class people were not educated in the same way that they are today, would adopt Marxist ideology and then help educate other people around them. So he's really interesting. He's an interesting person. Just like learning about everything that led up to Satan Revolution. Which is, as you said before, a very controversial read. Which I, I don't really understand why. Well,
0: we'll get into some of the controversies, I suppose, and I think we're we're firmly on one side of the debate. <laughs> so it's that's a, a little bit of a spoiler for the conversations going forward. But I think you bring up like a really interesting thing, and we're going to get into historical context more in depth throughout the conversation. But the rise of class consciousness during the early twentieth century. Uh, specifically because it's, its relationship to the Industrial Revolution and how the subjugation of workers was basically the inspiration for the proliferation of Marxist ideology. I mean, Marx was born out of the Industrial Revolution, specifically in England, and then it just expands from those several decades of just pure industrialization. And that's where Lenin comes across and uh, decides to uh, you know, just change Russian history forever and um, for the good. Um, but it feels like, I think, in some respect, like we're, we are now entering a new era of class consciousness. Like, I think more people, specifically like the online group of people that we tend to find ourselves in or in or around in a lot of culture today is becoming more class conscious because I think there is just like this breaking. Of society that we're all kind of like seeing, experiencing, feeling. And I think class consciousness, is, it seems like hopefully finally coming back after definitely the Reagan revolution in the United States, where it seemed to kind of fade away after the 1960s. So um, let's hope there's new a new Lenin in our midst is what
1: Wouldn't that I think be we're wonderful? praying for. I think you're really spot on with the development of class consciousness. We can see this resurgence of Uh, working class solidarity amongst different industries we see this a lot with like the starbucks unions unions have steadily declined since like the 1920s or whenever fdr i cannot think of what what year off the top of my head that he was president right now Uh, but like ever since then like they, they really have declined and we are seeing after the pandemic where we are going through another economic recession that people are seeming to catch on. And I think people being indoors, it had an effect on people. They were stagnant. They didn't really know how the world could keep working, yet we still had to. For what? For profit? Even though we were all risking our lives working the front lines, and other people who were, you know, more economically privileged got to stay inside. So we all kind of got to experience something that maybe we hadn't before. So if people weren't class conscious, they definitely are seeing something now that at least something is wrong. It's not working how it could be. It doesn't benefit everyone how it ought to be. And that change needs to come.
0: Well, we've seen this class consciousness growing for a while, specifically in 2008 with the Occupy Wall Street movement that happened as a result of the 2008 financial crisis. There has definitely been just since that point and and going forward, there has been such a acknowledgement of class as an issue, specifically in conversations that are online, where people are talking about it more openly than I feel like was probably happening before this point. But I think one of the things that we've certainly learned from 2008 until you know, now in 2023 is the kind of vacant role that government is playing in Any help towards class issues. Like the United States government is absolutely inept in terms of uh, policies meant to help poor people or disabled people or really kind of anyone. Like it's, I think we're both feeling that both culture and society and government just do not have active roles in helping us, which I think is like a really particular point of state and revolution that I think you want to touch on is uh, that. The system is not the solution. Like the system that we have, the democratic process, and this is one of like the foundational parts of state and revolution is solving the issue of the class warfare through democratic means of just like electing politicians to write laws that better us. Like that's not possible. That That is something strictly outlined in state and revolution as just the antithesis of what needs to happen.
1: Yeah, Lenin has a very brutal line where he's saying that like every few years we get to decide which particular representatives of the oppressing class should be in parliament to represent and reprocess. And that is so applicable today. It's incredible like to see something that was written over a hundred years ago and it's still writing true, which is also terrifying in itself to think that we are still repeating this cycle. And that's later on in the book, but Lennon spends a good portion of his time going through each point and kind of developing like why this is the case. I don't know where you want to like get started with that. If you want to talk about like the class society and the state, which is a very important aspect of this book, I would argue almost one of the most important aspects is just the first chapter. He gets the most out of like his, his mental processes of like, the withering way of the state and like the exploitation of the oppressed classes. And I feel like he did that strategically, knowing that people were probably only going to read the first bit and at least they would get something to take away from it. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I want to say before anyone gets like anxious about picking this book up, it is only about like what, 92 pages or so. It depends on the translation, but it's about 100 pages at most. So it's it's not a long read for anyone wanting to take a look at, what it is, but yeah, the first chapter is kind of purely the definitions of what state and what revolution kind of mean, and in these contexts of uh, Russia, but and then throughout the book we kind of get into the, like the broader historical narratives of those. But the state as really just an apparatus of suppression, like is the is what we're talking about. The state's primary function is to keep the powerful in power and to give them. Basically, the full sanction of the government to do what they need to do to oppress people. I, and I like there's so many more technical ways of describing the state, and Lenin does a great job of going point by point, but like broadly, that's what we're talking about. We are talking about a system in which the rich and the powerful are given full go ahead to do what they want to do.
1: Absolutely. And you can see that he's building on a lot of what Frederick Engel said in the origin of the family, private property, and the state, which is a really foundational read for Lenin in the development of this book. But him talking about like the state, because it existed prior to capitalism. Like we have seen this when I think it makes more sense when he defines like what exactly like the state is being like an organ of class rule which we know is like the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie dictatorship of the economic ruling class like they have more say over what is happening in everybody's life than the majority like it's the minority ruling over the majority that's like what he's he's trying to get at and trying to get people like on the same page like hey like this is not
0: the state is the function of oppression and it is basically derived through class that we get to this kind of conclusion and what he poses is is kind of what Marx poses and angles is that revolution is the only path through that. and And they set up Marx sets up kind of a coursework through which revolution can happen or 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 the kind of the idealized future versions. And we'll get to kind of some of those, but it's setting up a socialist state through revolution is what Lenin is agreeing that, like, it's our only possibility for a good existence is kind of I think, like how I want to think of it in the most elementary terms is like you're not going to you're not going to find a good existence without basically setting up the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is in <laughs> elementary language is just it's workers' control of the party system. It's workers' control of the government. and, doing what is best to benefit them and their kind
1: yes is the emancipation of working class but that being an action of the working class alone which is why in this text particularly he is pushing back against the social democrats like Kotsky and also the anarchists because he's trying to say like hey this is wrong but this is also wrong and i am right in. I hate a lot of words cuz he is quite petty throughout the book. Like you can tell you can read it the way he's he's saying things about them, but he's doing it in a lot more eloquently, I suppose is a better way to put it.
0: He's definitely doing it better than a lot of internet arguments go between uh, Marxist leninists and anarchists online where the whole kind of collaboration between these two groups is specifically in this concept of the withering of the state. It's like the state is fading or needs to fade away. It's it's kind of both and in that respect. And the anarchists kind of tend to side on like, yeah, it'll just like, it collapses and it there is no replacement, I, I think is kind of what their hopes and dreams are. But like throughout this book, you get a very good sense that <laughs> Lenin is saying like, no, 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 you cannot just like collapse the state and then you have a social society or system or anything. You have nothing, really. Like, there's just, if the society collapses through revolution and and nothing is there to make it progress through the next stages, then you haven't really done anything. You've just caused mass chaos in some sense. And so what Lenin is very adamant is that what he calls is the uh, dictatorship of the proletariat is what needs to happen. And this is a control of the state. It's it's purging the state of its former focus and its former driving components, and it's now turning the state into something for the workers and and controlled by the workers.
1: And I think that's like one of the more like controversial aspects of like Marxist Leninism is this idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat because it's either grossly misunderstood. People think it's a literal dictatorship. And I don't know if I can help people who think like that. I don't know how to dissect that. But in terms, it's just like we have to acknowledge that first and foremost, we live under a dictatorship, a total rule of the economic ruling class. The only way to completely oppress them and take away their power is if we are then on top and have the majority against that minority instead of having the minority against the majority.
0: I think that like the very concept of dictatorship is like one of those thoroughly ingrained forms of (laughs) propaganda that we like, we instinctually are like, kind of have to acknowledge or find it hard to accept the concept of dictatorship or that the dictatorship is a bad thing. And I think what it really does and and this is kind of my take on so much of the propagandized education system is that it stops conversations from happening. And and ultimately that's what reading books like this I like I am really hoping to do is like allow those conversations to continue or allow those conversations to even happen in the first place because the concept of dictatorship as like an inherently flawed thing really it stops the conversations from happening surrounding exactly like you said, like the fact that we are under a dictatorship or the false pretenses of democracy in this country, but, but truly it's a kleptocracy in some sense. It is, it is a class or it is a society ruled by the upper class in every feasible way and changing it into a society that is controlled by the lower classes and the working classes and however you want to phrase it. It's just literally impossible without a, I think a revolution and without the dictatorship component. We, you just can't vote it into being.
1: Yes. And I think a lot of people will hear that and they will say, Oh, uh, Nathan, you're anti-voting. And it's like, that's, that's not the case. That is not what we are saying, but that, In itself, like hoping that this dictatorship of the bourgeoisie would just simply hand over the power to the working class because we want it and we're going to the ballot box is just unlikely. That's all that we're suggesting is like multiple things have to happen at the same time. Like it can't just be us going and trying to vote for like these, I I can barely even call them progressives. It's not that I am like so extreme left, but in the United States, we are so far right we have to take more extreme measures i suppose when we're seeking for workers liberation
0: oh absolutely because it's it's the progressives of the united states are not even fully committing themselves to these types of conversations you know it's it's like there's a lot of dancing around the issues when it comes to socialist policies i mean like the whole kind of bernie movement was the media trying desperately to form bernie as a communist, this uh, absolute radical, and, and Bernie was, you know, I'm not going to speak ill of him too harshly here, but like he's just wanting a, you know, just a better system for people. Like it's he it's wants, not like, he's not calling for a welfare for, system.
1: Like that's what he wants, like the welfare state, like the Nordic countries have. Like it's a social democracy. That's what it is, and it's nothing right. like it does improve the material conditions to a certain extent of the working class people in the global north but that's still going to come at the expense of the overexploited proletariat of the global south and i just wish people would be more willing to accept that and not just think that we're trying to bully progressives we're just trying to highlight a really important fact about living in like imperialism capitalism neo like, neocolonial age um, that's very important to point out and keep talking about
0: absolutely because i think it's one of the things that I love, love, love doing on book talk, but pretty much everywhere online, is is trying to just reestablish kind of like the common knowledge that we all have of, of certain topics. I mean, something I got on quite a bit last year was just helping people like understand 20th century stuff, like how the CIA was involved with so many anti-communist crusades across so many different countries. And it's it's not purely, I would say, like necessary information for each person to have, but it is necessary information in terms of just, I think, losing kind of faith in the system, which I think is a really important aspect of not putting your faith in a social democracy coming out of the United States, because like truly it is just, it, it's not possible. And even if it was it's not actually the the best future, I think. And I think taking whatever it is through like the American education system that we've learned, and I think just slowly chipping away at kind of each individual facet of it into the point where people have just like oh lost faith. Like, so now when I hear a news story or something like that, it's just almost inherent distrust for what I'm reading. And I think like we could obviously go on to Parenti. Yeah, Michael Parenti's
1: inventing reality or like Chomsky's manufacturing consent or manufactured consent are both two reads about like the media bias. It's like exactly what cr- like conservatives want to say, but they don't execute it correctly.
0: Oh, absolutely. Like there's the there is control of the media, this whole narrative. And um, it's also one of those conversations, like when we talk about control of the media or like deep state type topics it's one of those things that we're like almost guaranteed to like not be able to have in-depth conversations on it because it, there's so many blockades around the way of like having actual analysis of the issues. And, and in the same way that we talk about class and we talk about revolution, I think we've just built a culture that like wants to stop these conversations from really happening. (laughs) Like, and I think we're all the worse off for it. And so I think if a podcast like this or book clubs can help like break down those barriers where people can actually like ha- start having conversations, then I think like we are in so much of a better position because I think class consciousness, and it's not specifically talked about like the formation of class consciousness is not specifically talked about in this book. But I think like one of the kind of fundamentals of this ideology is like, it is formed in locale. It is formed through the workforce. It is formed like through the communities that you build. And I don't know that the, <laughs> the internet that we have is like really setting up like a revolution. It is hoping, I think both of us in our time on the internet and being, you know, influencers broadly, is like hoping that people take the stuff that we talk about or the books that we talk about and then apply it to like their real lives, apply it to the real communities that they are a part of, because- those are where, like, a promising future lies.
1: Yeah, like, ideally, we want to give people the tools. Like, we're like micro propagandists. We're not, you know, doing anything like revolutionary online, but we are at least giving people the direction and the resources so that they can educate themselves and get up to that level of consciousness that we're at, because we are fond of reading nonfiction books, which is not something that everyone uh, enjoys. Uh, but then we have stuff like we can talk about like state and revolution or like left-wing communism and mental disorder or like any of those books and we can like draw a bigger audience in that may have never heard of it maybe from a more rural part of the united states where their education system is not going to even talk about marx it's not going to talk about Mao in any meaningful way so at least we can kind of give people even if they're just hearing it and like getting more like desensitized to those words and not having like that negative connotation associated with them. And maybe it'll it'll do something. It has to be working. Like it is working.
0: To no, an I think I think it is working. And I think it's just it's a slow, arduous process. But speaking of kind of being influencers that are out there <laughs> speaking truth and trying to educate the masses. Uh, one of the things that pops up over and over again in state and revolution is the concept of the vanguard. Do you want to kind of define what the vanguard is? It was the vanguard party was specifically what is mentioned here, but it is kind of this. It's almost like a thought experiment in some way because the vanguard has has gone much further than just the Russian Revolution uh, or the Bolshevik Re- Revolution of nineteen seventeen. The the vanguard is almost a trope at this point, if you know what I mean.
1: It it really is. Like, and that's kind of what sets Lenin apart from like Rosa Luxemburg. I would even say like Trotsky, I don't think Trotsky embraced the idea of like uh, vanguardism necessarily, but it's like a militant working class, right? Where you have, as it's been described to me and like how I have also read it is like the more principled people who have like the same idea and we acknowledge that a society needs to be, that it is oppressive and form needs to be deconstructed and rebuilt. And we all have like the same kind of idea because we're not utopians. We're not going to say, oh, it's going to go exactly this way. X, Y, and Z are going to happen. Um, but we all have like this general idea, like this is going to happen. Capitalism is causing it. Patriarchy is causing it. White supremacy is causing it. Like we have to dismantle this thing um, and we're going to do it with these tools. That we've been given and it has to be done by the working class like we know that but it's it, because it's so vague i don't know i think that's what people probably ca- take contentions with because like the black panther party was considered um a vanguard party of the united states
0: well in the black so, panther uh, party i mean one of their primary goals was just like the education of the members it was it was that they built education systems to spur up the interest and the knowledge of of everyone involved it wasn't simply just you were led by the smartest of the group and then that was like you were just stuck with that leadership it was it was no you were trying to raise the awareness of everyone involved but i think like the vanguard the criticisms that it draws from a lot of society t- tend to revolve around the concept of i think there's like an overlap between the ideal of the vanguard now and the professional managerial class, basically the high up academics. You know, like every famous leftist, as if like they are the ones that will be the solution to to the revolution that we need. Like you're going to get talking about
1: our armchair exactly debate, bro, bread tuber.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without big um, we are all relying on eighty five year old Noam Chomsky to just lead the lead the way, and instead, I think we we put so much reliance on these basically celebrities of the left as the the people driving the way. And what Lenin is really specifically talking about with the vanguard is much more no, these are these are kind of in some sense like the leaders of the labor force. These are not your academics. these are not your theory bros. These are people. That are have spent their lives ingrained into the system, and not that academics are not part of the labor system, as we've seen with the numerous uh, strikes happening all across colleges throughout the U.S., which I'm sure will be a topic that I'll cover in later podcast episodes. But the vanguard is is not what a lot of the criticisms as of recent have drawn against it, at least not in the historical context.
1: No, I think a lot of people think of what like vanguardism is just like elitist, like a group of like 100 people who just are like, "Uh, yeah, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to go storm the Capitol. I I don't know. That's what I've gathered is people's misconception of it. And it's very hard to combat that because then we do have the reference like work like this that people maybe aren't um, capable of reading or understanding in the way they might be able to. Or they ought to be. You know, like trying to read something like this, as much as I love State and Revolution, if you don't know what a proletariat is or like a bourgeoisie or like some of the other language, it's gonna be really difficult. Like, I remember the first time I read this and it went so far over my head, I did not know what he was talking about. I had to reread it and then reference like explanations and whatnot and just build that knowledge. But I I just wish people would like embrace that like willingness to learn. So that they could get over their fears of like what exactly a Vanguard is and like what it entails, even though they might still not agree with it at the end of the day, at least understand what it means.
0: Well, and that's like part of the reading experience of this book is I think the first chapter is brilliant. And as long as you can understand the language, you can really understand the concepts that Lenin is approaching. I think when you start getting into uh, specifically chapters like two and three talking about like the historical context of communes specifically like the Paris commune which has a whole history that Marx or uh, Lenin does not really totally explain in his writing he's he's coming up with critiques of it and and kind of expanding on some of the ideals during those times but he doesn't like give you an overview and so I think like a broader historical context that people uh, probably are missing when reading this one for the first time but I do think we get into chapter five, I think it is, and we finally have like a really good coming together of we have now built down or we have torn apart the idea of social democracies, and it's now time for like the conversation of revolution. And I kind of want to get into a concept that is only broadly talked about in state and revolution, and I think people would think it's it's kind of the opposite. But like the use of violence in revolution, because we do talk about the dictatorship of the proletariat, but this is not, it is not talked about in the book as like a militant dictatorship that I think like a lot of people would just like automatically assume. And violence specifically is kind of just like left out other than just the absolutism that having the revolution is a mandatory part of. progress of society. And I'm just curious kind of what you think as, do you feel like there's a point missing here? Because one of the things is the the book ends talking about uh, the experiences of the Russian revolutions of 1905 and 1917. And I really think here was probably the way in which Lenin would have expanded on the actual processes that these people went through in order to have the revolution happen and have it to be successful. And we don't really get that because the book, yeah, spoiler alert, you know, for the final chapter, the, the, the final chapter is just one paragraph saying there could be volumes to talk about what happened and how we got this to happen. And that's just the end. We don't have anything more. So I'm curious kind of what you think is, you know, maybe the missing part of this whole narrative.
1: I think when you first like read it through (laughs) and you get to the end, you're just like, oh, hold up. Like, that's it? Like, where's the rest? But he's also like pushing back against utopia, which he thinks social Democrats and anarchists are. So he knows at the end of this book, if he were to paint like this perfect picture of like what exactly would happen, he would be falling victim to precisely what he's criticizing. So I think that's why it ends so abruptly. And that's pretty on par with like, Marx and Engels, they kind of just do that. They kind of just decide that they're done, and they're like, yep, that's it.
0: Yeah, they know that the... history
1: will shape itself, itself, you know?
0: Yeah. There has been the uh, constant quotation of Marx as a just, like, profound uh, ADHD-brained person. This has just been, like, a growing TikTok trend of people talking about, you know, Marx would would lay around doing nothing for a week and then furiously type away at... A manuscript for five days straight, no sleep, just pounding what was probably some combination of caffeine and alcohol, and type up, you know, 120 pages. And then you wouldn't see him. You know, he would he would be like hidden away from the public, just sleeping for 72 hours straight. (laughs) Like maybe that's maybe we need more of that. Um, but
1: already halfway there. I mean, Marx was like severely depressed because he was like reading all of this, just completely consuming and submerging his whole life in like theory trying to figure out like why things aren't working the way that they should be and he knows that like people like Pradhan and and all of them like Bakunin are, are they're wrong and he knows it he just can't figure out why so he's drafting all of this work in his own head meanwhile he's just drinking and smoking tobacco and then he met angles and that I think it helped make things make sense but he did. Like we do need more of that. Like, what's wrong with not working and just thinking?
0: Well, and one of the, like the interesting things is uh, we have the Marxist-Leninist label, but then we have the Marxist-Leninist Maoist label, and Mao carries the conversation forward specifically with what Lenin was talking about with state and revolution of of the dictatorship of the the proletariat and the, the dictatorship of the people, and. Mao goes into kind of this whole ideology of this dual power, which is like these two systems are incompatible. And the only way in order to like have a successful revolution is to have basically continual revolution is to have basically you are always at an odd with the state. You are basically always resetting up. The power of the people, because what will happen inevitably, and we've seen it in like historical sense, is like the state once it is set up, specifically like the biggest example of this is just late history USSR, is like the state one it is when it is set up will revert back. Uh, the powerful will seize power and commandeer the state in order for it to work. Just as it does now, is work for the powerful instead of for the people.
1: Yeah, it's just period. Yes, and that's like what Lenin was trying to push back against. And I don't know as much history on like later USSR as they probably ought to, but it's pretty like indicative. I think even when you learn about it from like a Western lens, that like they started conforming to a lot of like reformism and they moved away from like their original mission statement. Like they just, they were trying to reconcile some issues with like the wars and whatnot that were happening, but I don't think they were doing it in the most principled manner that they could have. They definitely could have done things differently. And it's unfortunate to see like this big superpower or yeah, superpower against like us capitalism fall. And like how detrimental that was for the rest of society, because even though like it still wasn't great, right, they were um, regressing, it was still causing a lot of issues like the US did not like it. The US didn't like what was happening, it was still bad for capitalism. So the fact that we don't have that looming over for like, the economic system to like have, have a threat, all we have is like Cuba now, really. Or the DPRK, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into that. Those are like the only two real ones that we have to like go off of and to reference people to. We don't have like, wow, look at the USSR and like this this powerhouse. So it's unfortunate, but I understand why it happened, and you're precisely right.
0: We have the withering of the state as one of the most like profound parts of state and revolution. And the the withering of the state is both a revolutionary way of deciding to overthrow the state and, and set up a better system. But I think the withering of the state is also kind of a reference to the system that I think we find ourselves feeling like we are in today where like the government and social systems are not set up for people. And just a continuation of like the state is crumbling while also it needs to actually crumble because we have this, we've heard it called like late stage capitalism or the death rattle of capitalism or however you want to phrase it of just like, it is really profoundly obvious that things are not going well and we need them to change. And that's where we have the whole crux of the democratic socialism versus actual revolution. And I think this is probably one of the best ways in which the acknowledgement of the withering of the state is probably what will get people most interested in actually trying to figure out what revolution could look like here. I think it's it's only through like the acknowledgement of obviously class consciousness, but the acknowledgement that, that society isn't like not set up for us anymore. And it, you know, once you come to realize that, you also come to realize it was not set up for people throughout history, but I think it's just that breaking of <laughs> basically American propaganda of like, we are the best country in the world is like really firmly dissolving that is like th- the the best chance that we have for progress.
1: I think like one of the most intriguing aspects of the withering away of the state, because like, I, I didn't know what exactly that entailed when I first ran across it, but I think there's a line, it's really early, like, page 32 where it's like the first act by which the state really comes forward as the representative of the whole of society that taking possession of the means of production in the name of the or in the name of society is also the last independent act as a state like that's really important to distinguish like it's not like where you have these like social chauvinists like kotsky we have these opportunists who want to utilize this state that holds a monopoly of violence over the globe right the united states is not just like this country that holds power over its own people but it affects other people as well on a global scale and we have people who are like still have this mindset that kotsky also had where he's like oh well if we just like reform it and change it it's all gonna be fine It's like how is that how do you wither away a state by giving it more power
0: no i mean it's it's a constant confrontation that we're even experiencing now it's like uh, like the whole conversations that we're having around like th- the very notion of freedom as this actual entity in which like we are supposed to be structuring society around and yet freedom in its very real sense is is like a form of i think a form of consumption and it's a form of discrimination like freedom in the united states exists for the powerful to take advantage of people it is the freedom to not pay your taxes it is the freedom to drive whatever monster truck down the road that kills children like the the freedom that we have is is like i think the closest relationship that i can get to what lenin was talking about with the withering of the state it's it's like the very notion and the very fabric of the system is collapsing. And I think, like, to me, it just, it always, it it just instantly, that's where my mind goes. It's just the very concept of something ingrained in society. Because the state of Russia, that was, like, the system of power. (laughs) Like, this czarist Russia, like, this state is strong kind of mentality of, like, you put your faith in the state in order for it to, you know, all that you need it to be. And I think, like, in America, like, that is our notion of freedom. Like we put our faith in freedom as the cure for all of our ills. And yet in so much thinking about it, I think like the only real way to have conversations about it is to talk about freedom as not a positive thing, at least in the United States.
1: Yeah, it's interesting like to think of the idea of the state when we look back to like the creation of the United States and even though it was like a bourgeois revolution that occurred here and like our separation from like the original colonists like the state had very little power and Marx talked about it numerous times like how much he appreciated the United States and how like the checks and balances were and it's just interesting how we got to this point how everything has built up to be you know, like it wasn't intended to be that. Like, how did we evolve to this point where like the state has so much power when it didn't originally have that? It's not like we came from like these religious monarchies, like this divine right to rule. We mm-hmm. came here and then we just fucked it up. We really, yeah. we really <laughs> well, I think it's all it's, it it's all
0: like the breaking of the American mentality. It's it's like the 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 withering away that's happening now. It has to do with like the Patriot Act. It has to do with. The 2008 financial crisis that bailed out the billionaires. Like the fact that we are in such obvious and profound confrontations with the system is because the system has only further endorsed itself. <laughs> the system is only pushing itself further and further into, I think, this broad topic of fascism that we continue to have. Like, is America a fascist state or is it becoming a fascist state? Or there's even some leftist historians that are saying like, no, fascism does not exist anymore in any capacity. But I think regardless, it's something that we are all absolutely sensing that there is some kind of growing authoritarian thing and you can direct it at something. But ultimately, you know, it's not simply like Trump or DeSantis or a specific policy. It is the state the the government is in a constant position of growing its power. Like and that seems to be like the one of the main purposes of the government at this point is to just further control.
1: And it makes you wonder why people want to embrace a more like I don't want to say lazy, but a non-confrontational form of socialism when we can acknowledge that the state is becoming stronger. It is leaning more towards like alt-right and fascist ideology. Like how are you supposed to dismantle that? by being passive.
0: Well, and that's exactly what this this book is. At its kind of very thesis is, it is not, and I don't want to boil it down to too simple of a prospect, but it is, reform is not an option. It is revolution that has to be the option. Like, reform will not work. is really what we're trying to get at with a lot of this book, is is voting and specifically like the democratic means for which existed back in the early 1900s but reforming the state does not actually solve the problems it might mask the problems it might make them seem or or for a short while might quell the problems might might hinder them from progressing but ultimately the state will just continue and it will in its own way become more powerful the final kind of part of this book I think in some way leaves us with obviously the prospects for the future. Like the the book ends with the revolution, it takes place, or at least the book doesn't end with that way. But history history does with we know kind of what happened. The the story's already been told, but it sets up this kind of three part prospect for like the the possible futures. It is obviously like the state's success, which we've kind of broadly talked about here but if revolution is possible or if it does happen it really leads to kind of three forms broadly of just of communism of anarchism and utopianism and those are kind of like the mindsets going into revolution that i think people are prone to have like i think in order to spur people into revolutionary mindset it's they want one of those three futures to come about and i'm just curious i mean i know kind of what side we are on in this um in this ideological conundrum of sorts but i'm just curious kind of what you think of these three different potential futures like the interpretations of what exists after revolution
1: um i mean i think there's a lot of aspects of all of them that I do like like I don't think it's a good thing just to disregard one type of like um, leftist ideology just completely disregard everything it has to say I think there's important ideas that can be pulled from it but I think ultimately leading in the direction of like scientific socialism as per like Ingalls talked about is probably the most effective means of moving forward but also incorporating things that are like I like so a lot of anarchist ideas like mutual aid and really like focusing on like building up your community, which is like what the Black Panther Party did. And that was really important in developing class consciousness. So just in embracing some of those things. I don't want to fall back on too many utopian ideals of like what exactly want to happen. But I do think there's like some things we ought to like push forward, like mass um, education. Restructuring the education system, I think, would be a really important thing that ought to be done by people who are more principled in theory and then also focusing on like uh, decolonialism, anti-imperialism. I think those two things are really important uh, in keeping a center focus as people who live in the imperial core. But that is something that I think often gets overlooked by some of the like social democrats or democratic socialist self-proclaimed like today's folks.
0: No, I, I agree completely, because I think like one of the things that...
1: The... Oh, and police and prison abolition, that objectively has to happen. like Yeah. Like well, and one and of foremost. the things that
0: Lenin talks about like in the book, which was probably my little favorite part of it, was like revolutionary housing has to happen. Like that is one of the most like profoundly necessary things is like providing housing for the workers and providing housing for the poor is like you cannot like you cannot have a revolution and and like have homelessness like that's just like we're we're talking about antitheticals here like you cannot <laughs> like you you just cannot have that type of future, and I think like that's that's one of the the important things because online left spaces are basically in a constant playing around with like you'll see, like, Marxist-Leninists and anarchists are, like, sworn enemies. And it's, like, the, like, there's so many, like, Twitter beefs with people of saying, like, no, the worst person around is not, like, a Republican. The worst person around is, like, your, like, hothead anarchist friend. Like, it's just, like, we, like, if we have any chance of, like, building solidarity or building a future, like, it comes through, like, having our actual conversations in leftist spaces that are not like fully inspired by like, a single ideology. And I think one of the things when we pick a book like State and Revolution, it's not it's not for the purpose of saying like, this is biblical text. like this is what you have to follow. This is the only the only thing that you need to know. It's like, no, we need conversations to happen. We need to, like, consider the ideological perspectives, but we also need to consider, like, the historical ways in which building ideology into our future is, is not like a simple thing. And I, I hope, hopefully we'll be getting into that so much more as the podcast goes on. And Rai, I'm sure you'll be back for more conversations, but I think we kind of have to leave it there with, yeah, we need the revolution to happen, but we also need it to, um, not be just controlled by a bunch of like internet lefties calling for I don't even know what. The, I don't even know. Just
1: the revolution it will not be recorded or like um, organized in a TikTok comment section or no. in a Twitch streamers comment. I don't know what the streamers comment things are called. Some people <laughs> think that you can build community, go out there and go talk to your neighbors, talk to your co workers.
0: Absolutely. And support the unions, the union strikes happening all over the country. Hopefully, you've been following. A lot of the news that these things are happening in Starbucks, they're happening all over the place, Amazon warehouses and college campuses throughout the country. This is the form of revolution, or this is how it can start. And having any hope for a better future is only possible with these things happening. So I think with that in mind, I think we're going to call it quits for today with state and revolution. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, this conversation. I think much like every single podcast that I do, it will not end with like a specific, like we did it. We we now understand it completely and we have solved the problem because that's just not that's not how we that's not how we live. That's just not part of the process. But what is part of the process is having conversations and thinking about these things with other people and hopefully just spending some time dreaming up a future that is better for all of us.
1: Yeah, so don't think that you're limited to like this system that we were born into. Like, just dream of a better world, and we can make that happen. Like, I know that sounds really like sappy and silly, but you you have to have hope for the future that we can overcome these obstacles that are holding us all down. Like, we can solve homelessness and the cr- climate crises, but there's a lot of stuff that got to gotta gotta go into it. We stuff. have to be willing to put the work in and educate ourselves and educate the people around us. And have yeah. those hard conversations, and maybe this will just be a step, a stepping stone in the process.
0: Absolutely. Where, where, at, where can we find you online?
1: At hungry rye on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. I think that's all that I post on when I whenever I do post.
0: <laughs> no, you're creating some great book content recently. I am always fascinated by what you're reading, and truly, I I want to come to your house sometime and just peruse your library because it's always it seems like you're always picking up something like that i'm like oh god why why am i not reading this you know like i i need i need all of it
1: i feel the exact same way
0: (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much well thanks everyone for tuning in uh this is the first episode there'll be so many more we're going to be talking about so many different subjects with so many different creators We'll also be bringing on authors and people in the book industry as time goes on. So thanks everyone so much for the support already. If you want to support this podcast more, you can email me at schizophrenicreads at gmail.com or you can support me at patreon.com slash schizo reads. And you can find a discord on all of the tiers there and so many more perks. So thank you everyone so much for tuning in for the first episode. And I can't wait to talk to you guys again.